Part 2 Reconstruction Part 2 Reconstruction Chapter 11 What can the family do? In the introduction, I said there are two parts to this book. Principles and Application The Principles section answers the question, Who owns the family? Let's not misunderstand each other, even at this late point in the book. God owns the family. Every family. He has entrusted it with several sacred obligations. So, using the covenant model presented in the first chapter, I have covered ten critical areas where proper trusteeship has been given by God and where the state has tried to take the Lord's good gifts from the family. Now we should turn to some practical questions. Fine, you might be saying, I accept these principles, but after all, aren't we starting a little late in the game? What can my family do to put ownership of the family back in the proper hands? Excellent question. I've been asking it myself concerning my family too. In the last three chapters of this book, I want to talk about how ownership of the family is put back into the hands of the proper trustees. First, I want to tell you what your family can do. Second, I would like to instruct you what your church can do. Third, finally, I need to lay out a plan as to what the state can do. You're absolutely right if you're thinking, it's late in the game, but it's never too late. God is on our side, and that's all that matters. Fallen Christian cultures have turned around before. Take the 1700s in England, for example. England had become very decadent. The church was weak. The family was even weaker. And Christians were beginning to wonder what would happen to this once great Christian nation. God's people rolled up their sleeves and got busy reclaiming a nation that belonged to God. They called on him to honour his word, as he had promised in his word. Quote, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. End quote. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. England recaptured its Christian heritage through the great preaching of George Whitfield and John Wesley. Wesley's preaching literally sobered up hundreds of thousands of the English working class. It made them thrifty, future-oriented people. His message of eternal salvation and earthly responsibility laid the groundwork of the Industrial Revolution, which began in the 1780s. Contrast England to France. The French were also a people who had once been faithful to God, but had turned away from their covenant. Did they come back to the Lord? No. Instead, their leaders listened to the philosopher, a group of pagan, God-hating philosophers who thought the future hope of France was in an evolutionary and revolutionary view of man, and not God. The histories of England and France are quite different from that point on. From 1789 to 1795, France went through a bloody revolution. By the end of the 1780s, by the end of the 1790s, 
Napoleon Bonaparte, a ruthless military dictator, had come to power. He marched France into military victories and then defeat. French political life was disrupted by the revolution and it has never fully recovered. Political instability, coupled with stagnant bureaucracy, have been the marks of French life for almost two centuries. England, on the other hand, sailed into one of its finest hours from the 1780s onward. England's share of world trade soared. She became the master of the seas. Industrial production increased rapidly with the Industrial Revolution. By 1850, England was the richest nation on earth, an honour France had held 80 years earlier. But there were still problems, but nothing compared to France's problems. America is today at the same crossroads. It can go the way of 19th century England or decline like France. We should remember, however, that it is late. We should not waste any of our efforts. The Christian capital of our forefathers is just about used up. We need to remember the words of Hezekiah, an ancient king of Israel, who came to power when Israel was in sin. God convicted him, and this is what he said in an address to the nation. Quote, Children of Israel, return to the Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to astonishment, as you see. Now, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and will not turn his face from you, if you return to him, end quote, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 6 to 9. Wouldn't it be great if the President of the United States gave a speech like Hezekiah's? The same words apply to God's people today. Paul says the church is the new Israel of God when he says to the church at Galatia, quote, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. End quote. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. America was claimed long ago by the Church of Jesus Christ. Our presidents are sworn in with their hands on an open Bible. They take their oath of office with a commitment to the Christian faith. Sure, a lot of them did not honour their vow, but God took what they did seriously. So, America has been pledged to Christ. She is obligated to come back to the Lord just like Israel of old. Let's begin with the family. Returning ownership of the family to the proper trustees will have to be part of America's return to Christ. In this chapter, I want to present three things you can do with your family to put its ownership back into the right hands. Church membership. The first thing you need to do with your family is join a good church and submit your family to the discipline of worship. Remember, remember the passage I mentioned earlier about King Hezekiah? 
listen to what the people did after hearing they needed to return to God's house. Quote, Now many people, a very great congregation, assembled at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the fourteenth day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood which they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the congregation who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean, to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed, according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. The whole congregation of Judah rejoiced, and the priests and the Levites, all the congregation that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, to heaven. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pagan pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars from Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possessions. End quote. Second Chronicles chapter 30 verse 13 to 31 verse 1. Hezekiah told the people they needed to return. Where did they begin? Worship. Where did they end? Every man returned to his possessions. In other words, Ownership went back to the proper trustees of the family. Is this what you want? Then the place to begin is around God's throne. The Bible begins here. Earlier I talked about how Christ restored the family. The principle I emphasised was, honour God's family and he'll honour yours. You want to know why family life has degenerated in America? It is because families have turned away from the Lord. If they don't honour God, then he will not honour them. Look at all the efforts to save the family. Presidential commissions, millions of books, magazine articles, psychological studies and even television shows. How many of them ever mention the church and worship before God's throne? None. In the late 1940s there was a radio programme called, if my memory serves me correctly, The Family Hour. Naturally, it lasted only a half hour. It ended each show with the slogan, quote, The family that prays together stays together. End quote. The place to begin is the church around God's throne, worship, and God's house.
What should you look for in a church? 1. You want to find a church that believes in the Word of God. How can you tell? Here are a list of questions you can ask to find out what the church believes. Ask the pastor and the officers. Does the church believe in a 24-hour, six-day creation? Does the church believe in all 66 books, historically accurate, literal creation, fall of Adam and Eve, Jonah in the belly of a whale, etc.? Inerrant word of God. Does the church believe in the Holy Trinity? One God and three persons. Does it believe all three persons are eternally existent God? Does the church believe Jesus really died and rose again in three days? Does the church believe Jesus ascended bodily to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God? Does the church believe in one baptism and holy communion? Does the church believe the church is bigger than its own denomination or local church? Does the church believe a Christian is supposed to obey the Ten Commandments, with the only exception being that the Sabbath, the Fourth Commandment, is now on Sunday and no longer on Saturday, because this was the day Christ was resurrected? Does the church believe and pray the Lord's Prayer? Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Does the church believe that Jesus will come again and judge the world for all its sin? Does the church believe its members are supposed to believe all the doctrines covered in these questions? If a church does not believe these things, then find one that does. Remember, ideas have consequences. You may think you can attend a church and ignore the theology. You may think the preaching won't affect you and your family. You may think non-existent liturgy can't hurt anyone. Think again. I knew a conservative man who would not leave his liberal church. He was quite wealthy, and his family had personally contributed thousands, maybe even several million, to the denomination. He wouldn't leave. First, his church allowed men in the pulpit who didn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Second, his church allowed women's ordination. Third, ordination of homosexual. Fourth, prayers to Father, Mother, God. All this time he thought he could fend off the effects of the bad theology. For years he watched his children grow up in his large, beautiful, but liberal church. Sadly, one by one his children turned out to be second-generation socialists. He had had the strength to fight the bad theology, or had he, seeing what he had done to his family. But the children couldn't. He lost them all. Sure, his church had a lot of youth, money, beauty, choirs, nice services, ladies and men's groups, etc., etc. But what was it all worth in the final analysis? Nothing. So, find a church that believes the right things. 2. The second thing you want to look for in a church is sound practice. There are two criteria, Christian education and pro-life emphasis. If a church does not have these and is not at least working towards them, forget it. There is no neutrality. You can't afford to have your family in a church that is anti-Christian education and pro-death. Are the church's leaders sending their own children to Christian schools? If not, don't join unless there is no other alternative in town. And maybe you should consider moving. The church's leadership is weak. Are the church's leaders actively opposing abortion? Do they pick at the local abortion mill regularly? If not, don't join 
unless there is no other alternative in town. And maybe you should consider moving. The church's leadership is weak, so the first thing you need to do with your family is find a good church, become a part of it, tithe your money to the Lord through it, and support it in every way. Remember what we learned about the Karen and Quinlan case? The individual is not enough. It will take a strong church to offset status trends. If you want ownership of the family to return to God's trustees, the church is the place to begin. Christian education. The second most important thing you and your family can do is get involved in the Christian school movement. From a pragmatic point of view, consider how much time a school-aged child spends with his teachers. If teachers are not committed to Christianity, they will probably have more influence over the child. As the Roman Catholic Church used to say, quote, give us a child until he's nine years old and he'll probably always be a Catholic, end quote. That's why, no doubt, after biblical worship, Christian education has done more and will do more to change the nation than anything else. The Christian education movement has done two things to change our world. Creationism. Are you aware that for well over 100 years, evolutionary ideas have bombarded Christian civilization? For the most part, Christianity has been losing. It was not until the creation movement was picked up by the independent Christian school movement that the situation began to change in our culture. Evolution says that the material world is eternal, making God part of the evolutionary development of the creation, part of the evolutionary development of creation, not the creator. So what? So everything. This ancient pagan concept has been resurrected to affect every area of thought. If the world was created by God, then matter is not eternal. There is one true God. There is an absolute standard. If men don't believe in him, then what he says will happen, will happen. If, on the other hand, there is not a definite creator, then there is no absolute truth. Everything is in process. All process theology is evolutionistic and relativistic. Starting with religion, say the process theologians, there is not one correct religion because according to evolution, man started out believing in many gods, polytheism, and evolved into the belief in one God. Christianity teaches that man started out believing in one God and devolved after the fall to believe in many gods. Quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things.
End quote. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. The difference between the creationist and evolutionist emerges in every academic discipline, since man is a religious creature. In economics, there is no set, definite standard for how an economy is to be run. In law, there is no fixed law to which man is answerable, transcending above his national constitutions or his interpretations. Do you begin to get the picture? Creationism is at the centre of the battle for our whole culture. With it comes the true belief that there is only one way to God and one standard, Christianity. That's why Christian schools play such an important role in putting the family back into the hands of the proper trustees. If a Christian school, quote, saves money, unquote, by using, quote, free, unquote, state-approved textbooks, find another school. There's no sense in paying tuition to get warmed over humanism with a morning prayer. Those prayers are just too expensive. Moral environment. The second effect of Christian education has been the creation of a better moral environment for children. A recent study revealed that if a child spends 40 or more hours in a daycare centre, he will be permanently damaged psychologically. Why? It's the moral environment. In many Christian circles, environment has been greatly underestimated. Solomon didn't underestimate it. Listen to what he tells fathers to teach their sons at the very beginning of his book. Quote, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. End quote. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 10 to 19. Why do you think Solomon begins the most practical book on wisdom in the Bible with a section on staying away from the wrong kind of company? Environment is probably the single most important principle for becoming a wise man. Haven't you heard the saying that great men are usually found in groups of other great men? It's true. It's just as true that a good moral environment is what Christian parents are really paying for. I know Christian parents who send their children to public schools because the parents think, or at least they say they think, that public schools provide a better education. They define education as morally neutral technical skills and they accept the public school as a morally neutral environment. After all, there hasn't been a drug bust in the local high school for over a month, not one gang confrontation this semester, and the fact that Planned Parenthood has just set up an advisory service on campus is irrelevant. Even if they do tell the girls where to get contraceptives and abortions without parental knowledge or consent, other than that, 
Everything is squeaky clean morally. But in 1958, parents would have recalled the school board, fired the principal and called the police. The horrors Glenn Ford confronted in the Blackboard Jungle back in 1954 are all alive and well in the suburbs. Nobody was on drugs in Blackboard Jungle. Planned Parenthood didn't exist in 1954. Christian Hypocrisy Ask such parents why they send their children to church or Sunday school. Why to get a good foundation in morality? For two whole hours a week. Question, why do the children need a moral foundation? To protect them from today's immoral environment. Question, just what immoral environment are they in? Silence. Angry silence. You have just blown their cover. You have confronted them with their own hypocrisy. The children have been sent by their parents into the most immoral environment they are likely ever to face as Americans, unless we suffer a military defeat. The most consistently anti-Christian environment in America, the public school system. They may blurt out, we want the best education possible for our kids. Horse feathers. For a generation, national test scores of graduating seniors have been declining. Test scores of students in Christian schools are consistently above grade level. Everyone knows this, especially the parents who refuse to act in terms of this knowledge. But even if the public schools did prepare children better to take tests prepared by public school educators, it would be irrelevant. Christian philosopher Cornelius Van Til has said it best. Quote, it doesn't matter how well you sharpen a saw that's set off angle, it will never cut straight. Sharpen it, and it will still cut crooked, only faster. End quote. No matter how technically competent the local public high school is, and declining, and declining test scores for a generation indicate that it isn't competent at all, the question isn't technical competence. The questions are religious presuppositions and moral environment. We shouldn't be misled. Christian parents know what they're doing when they send their child into the public schools. They know that the public schools are Baal-worshipping moral cesspools. The fundamental issue is that they're too cheap to pay the Christian schools' tuition. All the baloney about religiously neutral textbooks and neutral moral environment is nonsense, and they know it. There is no neutrality in the war between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, and every Christian knows it. Some just won't admit it when there's money involved. Maybe, just maybe, it isn't a question of money. Maybe it's that Dad wants Junior to be captain of the football team someday, or Mom wants Sis to be homecoming queen. Maybe the local Christian school doesn't have a football team or a homecoming prom. Such parents have twisted anti-Christian priorities and they are willing to sacrifice their children's moral, intellectual and even physical safety on the altar of vicarious adult thrills. A challenge to humanist civilization. So, creationism and a moral environment are the two great forces of Christian education. These have been unleashed on humanist society and are also challenging a stagnant, compromising brand of Christianity that is all the last generation knew. 
Let's face it, we're just beginning a new programme of cultural renewal with our generation. Most of us, and most of the people who read this book, will be first-generation Christians who are educated in public schools. Our children will be the ones to begin to see the true resurgence of Christianity and its cultural effects. But we have to begin right now. If we're going to see the return to the family, what God has given it, we will have to put our children in Christian schools and join the fight. There are two options. Christian schools and homeschooling. My purpose is not to debate the two in this book. Both are important and both are valid. It's the validity of both that singles out the issue. Parents, not the state, have the responsibility of choosing what method of education they'll use, not the state. As long as we allow the state to take our children while we have little time to put them in Christian schools, we are more likely to lose the battle. But if we take advantage now and pay the price, even a double price for this generation, taxes and tuition, we can win back ownership for the family in the future. Christian activism. The third thing you and your family can do is become Christian activists. I didn't say revolutionaries. What's the difference? A revolutionary acts outside the law. He blows up buildings, steals, kidnaps businessmen, counterfeits money, etc. A Christian activist acts within the law. He writes his congressman, pays his taxes, while opposing taxation that is more than the tithe to God's house, pickets abortion clinics, works in Christian school efforts, etc. A Christian activist acts lawfully to create a Christian culture. He does concrete, roll-up-the-shirt-sleeves types of things. But some Christians think this is too much. In the town where I live, there are a bunch of Christians who think it is wrong to picket an abortion clinic. They say, We should just pray and leave the rest to God. Is that right? No. Prayer is where you start. Prayer is where you finish. It's in between prayers we are arguing about. Did you know there is a time when prayer isn't enough? Listen to the words of Isaiah. Quote, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fats of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Will you come to appear before me? Who, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense, incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 to 20. Prayer is not enough. I know that that may sound terribly unspiritual in days like ours, but it's true. Prayer is not enough. It never was. God expects us to be publicly active for our faith. Have you ever considered that more people in America belong to the institutional church than any other organization? That's right. What would happen if Christians really stood up and were counted? What if they went into the voting booth and had their ballots counted? What if they simply voted no on every school bond election? Just the few Christians who have stood up have sent political shockwaves through the ranks of liberal humanists. For example, for the last 50 years, political liberals have used ministers and religious people to rally their cause. Quote, Christians have a moral responsibility to come out of their closets and get involved politically. End quote. The National Council of Churches preached for half a century. All right, they have finally come out. Now the National Council types are horrified. Listen to the liberal hue and cry against fundamentalists getting involved in politics. It's all a bunch of hypocrisy. Christians are supposed to be involved in everything because they're the only ones with the right answers, Bible-based answers. Anti-National Council of Churches type answers. When the liberals scream, tough bananas, Christian involvement is what we're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what millions of Christians are beginning to do. That's what a lot more are going to do. The battle is just beginning, but you have to begin now. It's not so much a matter of what you do, as long as it's lawful. Just do something. Become a Christian activist and model commitment before your children. When I was learning to be a teacher, they used to tell me that people retain a lot more if they see, hear and do what is taught. You have many opportunities to teach your children how to be dedicated Christians. As James says, quote, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. End quote. James chapter 1 verses 22 to 25. Summary. Can you remember this chapter's title? Can you remember the three things you should do if you want to help put the family back into the hands of its proper trustees? The title of the chapter is, What Can the Family Do? It's the first of three chapters on the application of all that we have learned from the Ten Principles in the first part of the book. The three things that a family can do are, one, join a good church and become faithful, two, get involved in the Christian school movement, and three, become a Christian activist.